Hi there, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you listening from places like Allentown, Pennsylvania, Marietta, Georgia, Phoenix, Arizona, Sherman Oaks, California, Montreal, Quebec, Canada, Dorset, England, and County Kildare, Ireland. Great to be with you again. Please smash that follow button if you enjoy the show. And as always, click that five-star rating. Lots of good feedback from listeners lately, and I really appreciate that. And please share the podcast with a friend or two. You know, one of the things about podcasting that you might not know is that it can't really go viral, right? There's no social media algorithm behind it. So ratings and reviews do help to a certain extent, but I really depend on you guys to help me get the word out. So pick an episode you like and send it to someone who will enjoy it. And if everyone did that, the impact on the show would be enormous. So I thank you in advance for that. All right, well, who's still got that Ferrari F40 poster in their garage? Or maybe um, in your bedroom? Yeah, I figured. Well, today we're going to look at the origin story of the F40, a car that symbolized the entire legacy of the company. It was the last car to have Enzo Ferrari's personal involvement. And it was sort of three cars in one, as you'll see. That's coming up right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is brought to you by Model Citizen Diecast. They sell collector-grade scale model cars, and when you shop online, just use the code HERITAGE at checkout, and you'll get 10% off your order. Limitations apply. Choose from a great selection in 143rd scale, 118th scale, and even the ginormous 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. Just go to ModelCitizenDieCast.com, everything from race cars to street cars, muscle cars, exotics, and more. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. When the Ferrari F40 was revealed to the world at the company's headquarters in Maranello, Italy on July 21, 1987, it was like the rebirth of the company. The car was named to mark the 40th anniversary of Ferrari, but it was also the car Enzo Ferrari meant as a triumphant farewell. And that's because the grand old man, who was nearly 90 years old and in failing health, had seen his company slowly slipping away from its roots. Enzo Ferrari had worked for Alfa Romeo during their glory years in the 20s and 30s, and he'd raced Alphas under his own team banner, Scuderia Ferrari, or Ferrari Stable. He later left Alfa to make his own racing cars, and the first car to carry his name was built in 1947. The 125S had thin aluminum bodywork over a tube frame chassis with a small but high-revving 1.5-liter V12 engine, designed by a former Alfa Romeo engineer, Joaquino Colombo. The road-going Ferraris that came a few years later were basically thinly disguised competition cars. They'd become a necessity under homologation rules, and they financed Enzo's racing efforts. He really built road cars to keep racing. A larger 3.3-liter V12 was developed in 1950, eventually growing to 5 liters over the years. Ferrari found immediate road racing success in the Millimilia and the Targa Florio, and by the mid-1950s, the brand had secured two Grand Prix World Championships, and its cars became a favorite of blue bloods, jet setters, and wealthy sportsmen all over the world. But in the late 1960s, Enzo was facing tough times, and the future of the company was uncertain. You probably have seen Ford versus Ferrari, so you know the story about how Enzo was going to sell to Ford Motor Company, but 
When he found out they weren't going to give him full control over the racing program, he pulled out of the deal. Anyway, he did make a deal with Johnny Agnelli, the president of Fiat, in 1969. Fiat would take 40% of the company, and they would control the design of production cars, while Enzo would remain in charge of Ferrari's racing program. And upon his death, Enzo's remaining holdings would transfer to Fiat. It's likely that, deep down, Enzo Ferrari detested this arrangement, but what he hated more was the possibility that his company would wither and die like so many other sports car makers he'd seen come and go. Ferrari had to survive. But changes to the character of the product were inevitable. Ferrari was still building V12 engines, but there was also a new family of V8s. And in the 1970s, Fiat's influence resulted in a series of fairly uninspiring 2 plus 2 GT cars. Their racing efforts became focused exclusively on F1, and the separation between the road cars and the race cars grew wider. The styling of some models was much more Fiat than Ferrari, and performance was lacking, though to be fair, all performance cars suffered in those years of fuel crises and crude emission control systems. Then one evening in 1983, Signor Ferrari quietly took one of his trusted engineers into his office. The man's name was Nicola Materazzi, the chief engineer of the racing department. Materazzi had come to Ferrari several years earlier on the strength of his prior work at Lancia, especially in turbocharging, which had become the favored way of developing more power from small displacement engines, particularly in rally competition. Ferrari wanted to know more about what was in the engine development pipeline over in the road car department. He knew they were working on a 3-liter turbocharged engine. And although Enzo had no control over road car development, he wanted Materazzi's assessment of the new 3-liter turbo. The discussion went into power expectations of the engine, which had been making about 240 horsepower, and the engineers planned to increase that to 330. Materazzi remarked that with turbocharging, they should be aiming for 400 horsepower. That must have been just what Enzo wanted to hear because he immediately said, Va bene, fadate, which means fine, do it yourself. Materazzi said he was too busy with other projects, but the old man insisted, so he went ahead with independent design work on the V8 Quattro Valvole, the four-valve per cylinder engine. So he added a different set of twin turbochargers, a big fat pair of intercoolers, and at some point he shortened the piston stroke by one millimeter. More about that later. Now, unlike other Ferraris at that time, which had a transverse-mounted engine and a transaxle, Materazzi used a longitudinal arrangement with a rear-mounted gearbox. And this preserved the mid-engine weight distribution, but it also allowed for a five-speed gearbox and better integration of the intercoolers, as well as equal-length exhaust pipes, which were important for balanced operation of the turbochargers. Because remember, each turbo would be responsible for its own bank of four cylinders. When all these improvements were drawn up, Materazzi handed his work off to the production engineers. As far as the body, Pininfarina's Leonardo Fioravanti was the man who gave the new car its shape, which is very similar to the previous model, the 308. But he made this new car wider, with a shorter overall length, a longer wheelbase, and he reworked the body panels all the way around. And the result was a machine that Ferrari would call simply the GTO. So if you can't picture this car in your mind, if you haven't seen it before, just imagine the shape of the 308, which everyone knows from the TV series Magnum P.I. Except that the GTO looked like a 308 that had been hitting the gym. 
By the way, it's commonly called the 288 GTO by the press and Ferrari fans to distinguish it from the 250 GTO of the 1960s. The 288 is meant to indicate 2.8 liters and 8 cylinders, but the official name is simply GTO. It was after nearly all this work was done that there was any talk of racing the car. The history here is a little murky, and the company quietly submitted the design for homologation, meaning approval for racing based on producing a certain number of road cars. But we do know that in another one of Nicola Materazzi's frequent discussions with Enzo, the old man said that his friends were telling him that his road cars were too gentrified, too luxurious, no longer the sporting thoroughbreds they once were. Enzo wanted Materazzi more deeply involved with the GTO to keep it on target as a true performer. Materazzi agreed that, yes, it was true the cars had gotten a little soft. As it happened, the year before the GTO project began, the International Automobile Federation had introduced a new rulebook for competition cars. And in the Group B section of the rules, it was virtually anything goes for both GT circuit racing and rallying. There was very little tying the hands of manufacturers, and this was meant to push the sport forward through development and innovation. So Materazzi mentioned that they would never really know the potential of the GTO unless they could race it, and he floated the idea of competing in the new GT class. Enzo must have seen immediately that this could be a way to ensure the company's clout as a true sports car maker because the rules also required manufacturers to build a minimum of 200 production units. So that would force the production side of the house to move in his direction, even though he had no official control. But moving the design toward a racing specification was something that Materazzi had to do outside of the normal work week. So he enlisted the help of other designers, and they got busy every Saturday. And that resulted in yet another branch on this family tree, which I'll explain. But first, remember how I told you how he shortened the piston stroke? Well, that was to decrease the displacement of the engine because the way the Group B rules worked was that it was all about engine displacement. And that dictates further design parameters like tire width and the weight of the car. We're going to geek out here for a minute, and there's some math involved, but stay with me. For turbocharged engines, the Group B rules required a multiplication factor of 1.4. So just to simplify this, if you had a 1,000cc engine and you added a turbocharger, you would multiply that by 1.4, and that would be the equivalent of 1400cc. So there's the basic calculation. It was a way to figure turbocharging into the equation and give it a normally aspirated equivalency based on displacement. Now, Ferrari needed to stay under 4 liters, so Materazzi shortened the piston stroke by 1 millimeter, resulting in a final true displacement of 2,855cc's. And with the turbocharger factor of 1.4, that was the equivalent of just under 4 liters, or 3,997 cc's to be exact. The GTO's final numbers went like this. A 440 horsepower twin-turbo V8, just a hair over 2,800 cc, with 365 pound-feet of torque. And the car weighed about 2,550 pounds dry. Now back to that special weekend project that Niccolò Materazzi was working on. That became a car called the GTO Evoluzione, and six examples were built. So first we have the GTO, 
which is a streetcar, and then we have the race-bred version that he worked on more or less on the side, the GTO Evoluzione. So the GTO production run was well underway and they were going to homologate that car. But the Evoluzione needed some work. It had brute force, but it wasn't very aerodynamic. When Materazzi saw the highly modified body and the wind tunnel tests, he realized that it would not even be successful in endurance racing because it had a high coefficient of drag. And the rules at Le Mans limited refueling at the time, so the body would need to be changed. Again, he was told, va bene, fadate, fine, do it yourself. And he did, going back to Pininfarina to rework the body into a more aerodynamic shape. He also tweaked the performance and he got 650 horsepower out of the engine. It was a beast. So now they've got these two cars. And it seems like everything's coming together. But fate intervened. On May 2nd, 1986, during the Corsican rally, a driver named Henry Toivonen and his co-driver Sergio Cresto failed to make a tight corner in their Lancia Delta S4. The car went over the side of the road and it exploded and it killed both of them. In fact, the car burned basically to the ground. There was nothing left but the tubular space frame. And no one saw the accident. No one knew exactly what caused it. But it was the latest of a series of fatal events in Group B, including the death of spectators. And the cars had gotten a reputation among drivers for being too fast and a little bit twitchy to handle. So effective immediately, Group B was banned and any cars that had been in development were orphans without a home. Selling the GTOs, all 272 of them, was not a problem for Ferrari, but it seemed like the GTO Evo was at a dead end. However, factory drivers loved the GTO Evo, and Enzo told Materazzi not to kill the program, but instead refine the car for road use. So he was given full control, and Enzo even wrote a memo that specifically said, Materazzi, no ball busting. Give the man what he wants, then leave him alone and let him do his work. From May 1986 to July 1987, his team worked in secrecy to get the car ready. And on July 21st, the Ferrari F40 was unveiled to the public. Enzo said, Little more than a year ago, I expressed my wish to the engineers. Build a car to be the best in the world. And now the car is here. It had a 471 horsepower twin turbo V8, longitudinally mounted, lots of magnesium parts, a five-speed gearbox, and the drivetrain was cocooned in a tube frame chassis clad in Kevlar, carbon fiber, and aluminum. With all the lightweight components and an aerodynamic body and refined air ducting to the engine and the brakes and an enormous rear wing and bare-bones interior, the F40 was a brutal, uncompromising weapon. It was like a road-going jet fighter unlike anything produced anywhere else. The Pirelli company even developed the P0 tire specifically for this car and its 200 mile per hour top speed. Officially, the F40 was only available in Rosso Corsa, or racing red, but some were painted other colors like yellow and black. The planned production run was 400, but more than twice that number of orders came in right away. It was the fulfillment of Enzo's hope that his cars would reclaim their ancestry. Eventually, 1,315 were built. And as I said, the F40 was the last car to have Enzo Ferrari's guiding hand, and he died on August 14, 1988, at the age of 90, just over a year after the car was launched. 
It's one of the few supercar missiles that defined the return of high performance at the end of the 1980s. And it had none of the high-tech features of the Porsche 959, which was really its only rival. After delivering such a phenomenon, it looked as though Nicola Materazzi would lead Ferrari's road car department. But while he was on vacation, Fiat hired someone else instead. A guy who had been managing a subsidiary that made tractors. Which I guess shows you that, outside of Formula One, racing really wasn't a priority. Nicola Materazzi left Ferrari and he went on to do heavy revision work on the 1991 Bugatti EB110 another project that was having enormous difficulties, and he essentially saved that car. It would have been interesting to see the Group B GT class actually happen, and ironically the F40 only had a short racing career, but in the end it didn't matter, because they proved they could still build a world-class sports car, even if it was nearly half a million dollars. They'd made their point. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to follow the podcast, tell your friends about it, and leave me five stars and a quick review. Buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage if you want to support the show that way, always appreciated. The Instagram is at Horsepower Heritage. And until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening. <laughs>